Welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, the Gospel of John, that you may believe, zeal for the Lord. The original date of this message was the 23rd of October, 2022. Well, good morning, everyone. And welcome once again to Rancho Baptist Church. Yeah, that song is so fitting that we just ended our preparation time to open up God's Word. That is my prayer for us all that we would turn our eyes to Jesus this morning and that we would see Him for who He truly is. I've been spending this last week just pouring into John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. And the Lord has just been doing a lot of heart surgery up upon me. Been asking myself this question. How much of God's holiness do I see represented? I've entitled the sermon this morning, Zeal for the Lord. And I've been asking myself, how much zeal for the Lord do I see displayed in my own heart and my own life? And how much do I see zeal for the Lord displayed around me? My answer to those questions was was lacking. I don't see holiness on display too often in front of me. I don't see zeal for the Lord on display over and over again. In fact, as I I drove my car from here to there this week, what I saw again and again, and and even as I think about our, our country and what what we see happening, what I see is just lots of evil. That's what's on display over and over and over again. You see, in in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, we didn't have to worry about people decorating their homes for Halloween. That that may sound trivial and insignificant to you, but it has become an, an issue for me in the last week. I, I don't encourage any of you to do this, but have you have you been on Butterfield stage heading towards Marietta, just past Rancho California? And as if you have, then you have noticed something that is that is pretty glaring. Why? Because they built up this great big bank, and at the top of that bank there is a a grim reaper, and he's huge. And there's a big light on him at night, so you can't miss him during the day. You can't miss him at night. All attention wants to be t- turned towards him, and, and then he's, he's got these things hanging below him, literally hanging. And we drove by several times in the, in the last couple weeks, and, and, and our kiddos are really quick to point to him. Look at that, look at that, look at how gruesome that is. Isn't that cool? And I say, no, it's not cool. It's death and destruction and it's being celebrated. And as I poured into this passage this this week, I I was convicted that, you know what? I I can't go to, I don't don't know if that's city, land, or or what it is. Um, I can't take that down. At least I don't think I can. If you see it disappear, don't come in me, okay? But you know what I can do? I can drive a different way and still get home. More to the point is, after a while, I be- become desensitized. Did I cruise by it yesterday? Yes. Did I have any discussion? No. Instead, what I come away with is I hate Halloween instead of an opportunity to glorify the Lord. Instead of seeing his holiness being trampled upon. What we're going to look at this morning is going to be challenging for us. And you might just walk away and go, you know what, that's Jesus. 
He is, I am so much not like him. Pastor Jason, that's just too high of a standard to hold. What, you, you want me to look at life the way that Jesus did? You want me to respond the way that Jesus did? Well, he, well he's God. And so, of course, for him, he is pure holiness. In answer to my question, have we ever seen true holiness? No, but we will one day behold true holiness as all will. But we can see from God's word another example in the Old Testament. And I'd like to start our time off there this morning as someone who had a zeal for the Lord. Someone who understood something of the holiness of God and responded in a way that, in the same way that Jesus did, that, that kind of goes beyond what you and I would think in a response, a, a godly response. And that is the life of Moses. Turn with me to Exodus 32. And we're going to look at verses 15 to 21 this morning. And I, I want to kind of pin back where we're at in the, in the life of Moses and the nation of Israel in order for us to understand this kind of lead and why I want us to look at Moses as someone who can be, you can be like. But Christ does work in us and gives us a greater and greater appreciation for him. A sense of dedication to seeing God's holiness honored and a passionate commitment to, become ho- to becoming holy as he is holy. That, that's what I'd like to present to us this morning as a definition for a zeal for the Lord. We see this in the life of Moses. We're going to see this front and center in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is something that we should see in each of our lives. This should be something that we see present in our church as we corporately gather to worship him. A sense of dedication to seeing God's holiness honored and a passionate commitment to becoming holy as he is holy. It's twofold. It's recognizing God in his holiness and then it's the desire to become holy as he is holy. And in this, we get a glimpse into God's holiness through the response that Moses has. So we know Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and there the Lord Jesus meets him. Gives them the Ten Commandments and everybody hears it and they are so scared that they say, okay, Moses, from here on out, how about God talks to you and then you talk to us? Because we don't want to hear him in all of his glory and his thunder anymore. It's too much for us. Even though the whole significant idea behind God speaking to them was to remind them of his holiness. No, what we like to do is put God's holiness aside. Why? Because it hinders us. And so then what does God do? He not only gives them the Ten Commandments, he gives them all of these laws on how they're supposed to relate to him and relate to one another. And as he's wrapping everything up, he says, Moses, hey, look at verse 7. Exodus 32. I want you to do something. Go down there. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once. For your people, notice he doesn't call them my people. He calls them my people again and again and again and again, but not here. He's disassociating them with him. Go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. No, that was you, Lord. What have they done? Have corrupted themselves. We even see in verse 10, Now then let me alone, says the Lord, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will will make of you a great nation. But that isn't what the Lord does. Instead, he uses Moses. As Moses speaks on behalf of him, on behalf of all the people, hey, don't do that. And then we see this account in verse, beginning in verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides, they were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work. And the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Can you imagine? God's writing, God's work given to Moses, God's gift to Moses to his chosen people. 
This was a good thing. This was God's gracious gift. Hey, this is how I want you to live. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. But he, Moses, said, it's not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. It's the wrong kind of singing. This is a fake worship, just as we're going to see happening at the temple with Jesus. And it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the floor of, at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. And then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? that you have brought such great sin upon them. What were they doing? They were worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. They had got it in their mind that it was not the Lord, it was not Yahweh who had released them, rescued them, and taken them from Egypt to where they were now. They thought it was Moses. And so when Moses doesn't show up after all of these days, they abandon him as their so-called God and they start looking for another God. And they go to where they know, they go back to, oh, how we were in Egypt and there was, what, calves that were worshipped. So how about you make this for us and that's who we will worship. At times, don't we do the same thing? My, my question for us all is, how would you have responded if you were Moses? What's equally challenging to me is, and and you can search this, there's no account or record that this is deemed as wrong. How Moses responds. In fact, his brother says, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. That's about the only rebuke that you get. And it's from Aaron. We don't see anywhere in in, in the word that I know of where Moses is called out. This isn't like the account of the first murder. Hey, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door and it wants to master you. God just speaks to Moses. He knows exactly what's going to happen, but he doesn't tell him, hey, but don't break those two stone tablets. In fact, we don't even see a a hint of of Moses and and his anger issues until you get to Numbers chapter 20. And at that time, what happens? Well, then it's clear. Moses is in the wrong. He's, He's in a sinful way responding to the nation of Israel to once again their rebellion. And instead of speaking to the rock as the Lord told him to do, he hits the rock. No, he hits it twice. And then God pronounces judgment, not just upon Moses, but upon Aaron as well. And do you remember what he says? He says, because you have not treated me holy. Again, it's back to God's holiness. Do we consider God and his holiness as much as we should? Because you have not treated me holy in the sight of all Israel, you will not bring this people into the land I've given them. What we must understand as we open up John chapter 2 this morning is that God takes his holiness seriously. He takes his worship seriously. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 5. And so should we. We should take God's holiness seriously. We should take worship seriously. As we gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning as we open his word. That's the challenge for us. Are we taking his holiness seriously? Do we really have zeal for the Lord or do we not? Look at verses 13 to 25 as we continue. And I want to remind us where we were last week because it's significant. Last week we walked with Jesus to a wedding. We 
sat in the wedding with him and we saw him do the unbelievable, the unthinkable. He didn't have to do what he did, but he chose to do it. Why? Because he is a, a God full of joy and grace. And because he wanted to let us all know that what he was bringing was greater than anything that had come before in the Old Testament and the cleansing that happened and what he brought as a new covenant. And this couple and this groom who could have lost all their joy on that particular day if what had been made known was known about them running out of wine, Jesus steps in and says, yes, I don't have to do this, but I'm going to do this. And what is that whole scenario filled with? Joy, joy, joy. That's why we go to weddings. That's why we love weddings. And now where we're going to walk with Jesus is entirely different. Where we're going to walk with Jesus and we're going to watch him is as he enters into his house of worship, the temple. And I want you to consider as we look at this what your attitude is like as you come to worship on Sundays. What kind of preparation do you do? What kind of expectation do you have? Are you considering the holiness of God as you come here on Sundays? How about throughout the rest of your week? There are supposed to be, according to historians, some two million and a quarter people that arrived that were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. It's three to four times what the normal amount of the population is in Jerusalem. So we are talking about a mass number of people coming, all for the purpose and the intent of what? Worshiping a holy God. And now this God steps in. This God is there. And he is watching. And he is going in order to watch their worship and worship his father as well. And something dramatically different happens than what you would think would happen in this kind of situation. We see his zeal for the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. And the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we stop and we thank you for giving us your word. We acknowledge, we confess to you, Lord, that we don't always think of you the way that we ought. Help us this morning to get a truer picture of your holiness, of your zeal, that we might be able to follow you, Lord Jesus, and become more and more like you in this world that you have placed us in to be your lights. May you be honored and glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is this all about? This is all about what true worship looks like. We, we will find when we get to John 4, 24, that God is spirit and that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. There, there's, there's no ands, ifs about it. You, you don't get the option. It's not optional whether or not you are to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, not the Holy Spirit. It's speaking of your spirit, your individual spirit. 
This is something that you individually do with all of your being and you do it according to truth. What truth? Not your truth. The truth he has given to us in his word. That is what he calls us to and that is not what was happening here. And so as Jesus arrives on the scene, what we see through this depiction of John is what is supposed to lead us to the discovery that Jesus is God. Through this display of his holiness and how he responds to those who who treat God smaller than God is. Who treat him as unholy. Who treat him as though he doesn't care how they respond to him or what they do in his temple, in his holy place as though he will not judge them when he will. And so we'll see four pictures of how God's holiness is seen in Jesus. Through the verbs that we see, we're going to be seeing something. We're going to be seeing the loss of holiness through the eyes of Jesus as he arrives on the scene. We're going to be seeing Jesus responding with a zeal for holiness promising the gift of holiness and revealing the knowledge of holiness. Everything points to holiness because Jesus Christ is the perfect representation and living form of holiness. So let's look first at this aspect as we walk with Jesus and as we approach the temple with Jesus, what do we see that he sees? We see the seeing, the loss of holiness. It's not here. It's supposed to be here. This is supposed to be a place of of praise and prayer. This is supposed to be a quiet place. This is supposed to be a place of some, what what, what they guess, 750,000 people could fit in this court of the Gentiles. Anybody could come. And there they could worship the Lord. That is what it was intended to do, but that is not what Jesus finds. That's not what we find. Instead, look at what we find on this, the Passover, where they're supposed to remember how the Lord passed over them, provided salvation for them through what? The shedding of blood. Again, pointing to Jesus. And he found in the temple, verse 14, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Listen, that's not wrong. What they were doing or what they were intended to do selling the sheep and the doves and having money changers, that was needful. Because so many foreigners came to Jerusalem. And so one, they didn't have the right kind of currency. They didn't have the right kind of money. So you needed to have some sort of exchange system where someone would exchange their money for the money that was used in the temple. That was all fine. They weren't going to bring their animals with them from far away, so it was also fine to have animals there that they could purchase. For what intended purpose? Not to make money off of them, not to exploit them or to extort them, but that they might enter into worship. That's where everything gets mixed up because what it becomes all about is turning God's holy house of worship into a money-making house or market really that's what they turned it into this is happening on the temple grounds in the court of the gentiles and we know that that where's there where there is this loss of holiness there is also a loss of true worship you can't have one without the other you get rid of appreciation and understanding and a view of seeing God as holy, then your worship will become askewed as your understanding of who God is. And that's what was happening here. And remember, this is all in the context of Jesus coming in order to worship. Entering into holiness and expecting to see something that he didn't see. People gathered together quietly praising the Lord, worshiping him, praying to him. He's the object and they don't even get it. And instead what we see is noise upon noise upon noise, animals and all of their noisiness. But it wasn't just that. It's the clanging of of coins being exchanged. 
And it wasn't just that. It's barters. They're trying to barter. Why? Because their prices are, are hacked up, hiked up so, so high that everybody would come and say, oh, no, no, I don't. Hey, can I pay a little bit less for this sheep? And it was all about trying to work the system, which was not the system that God intended for this to be. This was to be a house of worship. They shouldn't have been doing any of this even there on the court of the Gentiles, but it was easier to do it there. And it was easier to make more money by doing it there. But lest we believe that that we're nothing like them, pay heed to your own heart. Why? Because it is so easy for us to become callous, to become insensitive, and to just jump into the normal routine. Do you think that everybody that was going to the temple was thinking, oh no, I'm I'm now part of a business? No. No. Do you think those that were selling these goods that they started off with that kind of attitude? Probably not. But what happens over time is you become more and more insensitive to what is going on. And then before you know it, you've actually established a whole new pattern that is a far cry from how you started off. Perhaps you can see that happening on Sundays. As you listen to whoever, the pastor preaching, the worship songs, and your mind meanders into all sorts of different areas. Oh, man, what are we going to eat for lunch today? Am I going to get home in time to watch, to watch that game? Oh, I can't stop thinking about this latest thing at work, this, this latest project. Or you fill in the gap. And instead of coming here, and truly wanting to worship the Lord and put him first in everything, you're battling your mind over and over again because you just keep running off away from the intended purpose, which is to worship the Lord and to open up his word together and allow God's word to speak to your heart. Are you missing some of that? If that is the case, we can find ourselves like Solomon In Proverbs 5.14, where he says this, I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Why? Because we can become desensitized to the holiness of God. And we can turn his worship into something that it was not intended to be. And our hearts can be far from him. The question for us all is this, how authentic is your worship? Your authenticity regarding your holiness is a true reveal on what you really think of God. And this shows up in our worship. Whether or not we are concerned more with God or what everybody else around us is thinking. If they would notice us if we raise our hands while we're singing or or you fill in the gap. These are things that we must consider. And as Jesus enters into that temple, he sees a loss of holiness. Do you see a loss of holiness in your own life? That which you used to consider oh so significant and important. A passion for purity that perhaps isn't there. It should be there. And then as we continue on with Jesus and we watch him, what we see next is is this, responding with a zeal for holiness. That is how he responds. Look at verses 15 to 17. He doesn't just keep it in his, in his mind as to what is happening and how they have lost true perspective on God's holiness. He steps in. What's your picture of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, who do you picture? Do you picture a lamb, first and foremost? Do you ever have the idea that Jesus Christ actually is also a lion, a roaring lion? Because that is who we see pictured here. And he made a scourge of cords, That means a big old whip. And he drove them all out of the temple. That's an amazing feat. If there were 750,000 people, how could you do that? He's God. Did he have to really get them all out? Yes, why? Because he's giving us a lesson that this is holiness and that this needs to be redone completely. Start from scratch. Let's start all over again. And now you come back in with the right kind of hard attitude. Even in this, you can see some grace. Why? Because they've fallen away. And now he's reminding them of what is of utmost significance. 
drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what happens? Gets this whip. And who does he go after first? He goes after those with all the animals. And all he has to do is make a little bit of noise with that whip and those animals are taken off. Recognize he is under control. He's not beating animals. He's not being cruel to animals. He's not even being rude to those that are there. He's, doing, he's showing his power in such a way that it's totally under control as no one else could do. And he drives all of them out. And you have to picture, think, can you hear it? As loud and obnoxious as it was before, it's just intensified tenfold. Why? Because all these animals are going all over the place. And those that have those animals, what are they doing? They're chasing after them. They're trying to grab them. They're trying to figure out where they're going to end up. And then he flips over the tables of the money changers. So now all coins are flying. And no doubt some are trying to get some freebies. And the guys that own those coins, what are they doing? They're chasing after them. And then he comes to those who have the birds. And they're in cages, so he can't do anything with his whip. So what does he do? He says, hey, get them out too. And he points it all down to the fact that this is not how you should be worshiping. My house is not a house of profit, of money. And how many churches are going to be held accountable just in that light? For not being faithful with what the Lord has given them and for abusing the power that they've been given, the authority they've been given, the platform they've been given. And what do they do? They twist it just as the Pharisees did and it becomes all about them getting money. Yes, let's not think that Jesus is only the Lamb of God. He is the Lion as well. Turn with me to Matthew. Chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I could have turned other places to show us just how Jesus again and again shows his righteous indignation, his righteous anger. Yes, he is humble, he is meek, and he is incredibly loving, but when the holiness of God is being jeopardized, being stamped, stomped on, then you see him come and he does not come lightly. He comes strong, powerfully, with with words that should shock us, with words that should have woken up these Pharisees and caused them to repent and turn. Why? Because those that the Lord had designated to be the lights that would lead the people to Yahweh were actually doing the complete opposite. They were pulling them away, just as is happening in, this, in the temple. And so look at Jesus' response in Matthew 23. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Can you get any stronger with your language than that? Look at 17, You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And go down to 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that, you're, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, 
but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? These are the words of our Lord. Why are his words so strong? Because he takes holiness and worship of him of utmost significance. He takes it seriously. And so that is why we see him respond the way that he responds. That is why we see the disciples look at him and I'm sure that as they watched this whole thing unfold, they were aghast. Why? Because no doubt they had been to this temple during Passover how many times before and they never had a thought in their minds that what was happening actually might have been wrong. They didn't think it would go like this. And yet as they're watching everything unfold and we don't know exactly when the time frame is, at some point Psalm 69.9 comes to their mind. The Psalm of David. This is what David says. That zeal for your house will consume me. We know that he couldn't build the Lord's house, but he still had a zeal for the Lord's house. This word consume means to be eaten up. That's how the Lord Jesus was regarding the holiness of God. It ate him up when he saw it abused, when he saw it neglected. How do you respond when somebody uses the Lord's name in your presence? I know that may sound minimal, but that's a good indicator for me. When somebody makes light of the Lord and things that we hold with strong conviction from God's word, how do you respond? What is equally challenging about the Psalm 69.9 passage is it goes on. It doesn't just talk about the zeal for your house that will consume me. But Paul goes on in the second part of that same psalm and he says this, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Hey, what they do to you, it's like they're doing it to me. They shame you, they're shaming me. They belittle you, they belittle me. They demean your holiness, they're demeaning me. Is that what it's like for you? This is so challenging and yet at the same time so much grace being extended to us. As we see the Lord Jesus Christ showing us what holy anger looks like just as we saw in Moses. And, and what was this holy anger based upon? I think if you boiled it all down it would be based upon his love for the Father. I would say there's a, a direct proportion to your love for the Father and, and your desire to be zealous for him and to call things that he calls holy, you call holy. And to seek after that which he says go after and be holy, then you be holy. Why? Because you love him and the last thing you want to do is not do what he desires of you. What were they re doing? They were reducing the holiness of God down to nothing and making money more important. And they were pulling people away from true worship. That is why Jesus responds with so much passion. And do you have passion for holiness in your thoughts, in your struggles with sin? Do you take the worship of God as seriously as Jesus does? Sunday after Sunday, day after day, so next, as we continue to walk with Jesus and, and the dust settles and now all the animals are gone and all those that were selling are gone, then we see, what do we see next? We see a question that arises and the answer gives us this, the promising, the gift of holiness. That's what Jesus is doing. We see him promising this gift. Why? Because no one can approach God and live if they are not holy. 
what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, it's verse 14. It's what we see in Scripture again and again and again. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so God wants to extend his grace to us and allow us to know that even in this, there's hope for you, there's hope for me. And they totally miss it. As he responds to their question, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So as marvelous as this was, they're not looking at this as a sign. But they're thinking that he might have one under his, his coat. He'll pull it out and do one of those you know, miracles because they've heard about him doing some miracles. So maybe he'll do a miracle for us. Notice they don't arrest him. They don't stop him. Perhaps this is a, a, a legitimate question. What sign do you do to show us is your authority for doing these things? And then look at his answer. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I wonder if he actually pointed to himself and they totally miss it. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? Jesus is really, really, really extending grace to them. Why? Because this was not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple had already been ruined and then restored. There, actually, many believe they're still in the process of restoring it even at this time. So they recognize, hey, this doesn't last forever. This temple. And Jesus is pointing to that, directly to that, and saying, hey, this is a temple made by man. I am God made man. I will be with you forever. And to ensure your holiness, listen to what I'm going to say to you now. To ensure, to let you know, to prove who I am, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah. Listen to me. I'm going to give you no other sign but the sign of Jonah. That as he was in the belly of the well for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and then rise again. And so he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He is revealing to one and all that he is greater than the temple that they are worshiping in that he just basically turned upside down and made everybody leave. So are they looking at an empty temple? It's nice and quiet so they can hear everything that he is saying. And then we're told that the disciples get it. That he's speaking of his body that John understood. And they all clue in later. And they remember, oh yes, that is what Jesus said. Again, it's pointing to the greatness of Christ. We've seen this again and again. And we're only in chapter two. That Jesus is the word. He's greater than anything. He's the one that created all things. That Jesus is greater than Moses as the law was given through Moses. But what? Truth and grace come through Jesus Christ. And then even last week, he's greater than the sacrificial system through the cleansing that was given through that. Why? Because what he did with his blood, he did once and for all. What he brought in was a new covenant that was greater in every way than the old covenant. And now he points to what? This, the temple. This temple that was crafted by man. And Jesus is now God. Really making a home for man with him for all of eternity instead of man making a home for God in a home that was temporary, that would have to be redone a couple times, will have to be redone again. All of that points to the fact that Jesus is so much greater than this temple made of stone by man. And so he's pointing to himself. And in that, he's also pointing to how he's going to grace all of humanity, all of humankind, all of mankind. By what? By living a perfect life by dying upon a cross paying sin's ultimate price 
so that we might, what? Have life and have it abundantly. And the complete shocker is that when we believe in him, he comes and lives inside of us and we as the church, what? We become the temple. And we as individuals, our bodies become the temple. That is why we are supposed to be holy as he is holy. But finally, as our time with Jesus is wrapped up in the temple, we hear this. We hear him revealing the knowledge of holiness. Because him being the pure picture of holiness, he knows not just our actions, but he knows the thoughts and intents, the purposes, the inclination, anything that we think, and the motivation behind it, he knows it. And it is as clear to him as anything else. That's why he could call Nathaniel the man that he was. Look at verses 23 to 25 as we see this, revealing the knowledge of holiness. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Notice that John only gives us one sign, the miracle at Cana. But there must have been many other signs. We know that from the other Gospels. John doesn't put them in. Why? Because he wants to keep Jesus front and center. Not all the responses. So he just takes them all and puts them in kind of one general response. So all of these that saw all of these wonderful miracles and signs, what do they do? They believe. Observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, our translations kind of miss a little bit of the nuance that is going on here of what Jesus is saying. Because in verse 23, when you see this word, many believed in his name, that same Greek word, or, or at least the root of it, is also used in how Jesus is described in verse 24 where it says, was not entrusting himself to them. Literally, it could be, was not believing himself in them. What, what is he getting at? What does he mean by this? He's saying, though they believed in Jesus, Jesus was not believing in them or in their belief in him. You could say it like this, he had no faith in their faith. That's literally what he's saying. Why? Because Jesus could see deep into their hearts and he knew that their faith was shallow, that their faith was not authentic, that their faith was superficial. It was not true saving faith. And so no matter what they looked like on the outside, he knew what they were really like on the inside. And true saving faith is a living faith which brings eternal life. We can see that in the disciples who remembered what he said after he was raised from dead and believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus was spoken. They're held in a different light than these other ones. These other ones are miracle seekers. They believe that Jesus is a miracle man, but they don't believe that he is a savior. Why? Because we don't see any place where they had conviction of sin, nor that they acknowledged that they needed a savior. They just wanted to clap and applaud all the cool things that he was doing, but not recognizing that they needed a Savior, that their sin needed to be paid for, pointing to what Jesus would do. So what does this all mean? What's the takeaway from this? I recognize this morning that, that we're not in Jerusalem. This is not the temple. And I'm not Jesus and you're not Jesus. But what does Jesus want us to take away from this? How should we respond? One way to, would be to recognize the importance of how we corporately worship God together. Keeping him holy as he is holy. And how our corporate worship should reflect our zeal for the Lord together as we gather. That's what this was in context. They were coming to worship the Lord. It wasn't one individual. It was the whole nation and any of those outside that had been grafted in as proselyte Jews. They were coming to worship just as we come on Sundays and we worship. We come on other days and we worship. Wednesday nights, what is your attitude like as you approach God? 
Number two, another way to respond is an ever-increasing hatred for sin and idolatry. The reality is we should hate sin more than we did last year, last week. Do you? Or is your attitude towards sin the same that it was before? And that instead of recognizing it as something that, that really you need to take a whip out and whip out of your life, and chase it away and purge it out of your life just as Jesus purged the temple, you just keep letting it live there. And it's going to keep growing and growing and growing. And over time it will what? It will master you. But praise the Lord for God's grace that we see that, that even though he knows us and he knows us inside and out, that his grace is always there. And that where sin abounds what? Romans 6 grace abounds more. Amen? So let's make sure that the reason that we're going after sin is why? Because we love him. Because he's our everything. And in the same way that Jesus loved the Father and was horrified by what they were doing to his Father's house, we need to have that same kind of love for Jesus and the same kind of zeal over the sin that resides in our church and in this temple that we call our bodies on a daily basis, that we together seek him to root out those sins in our lives, just as he did all of these folks in the temple. Let, let me pray as Pastor Shane and the worship team come up. Heavenly Father, we stop and we thank you for how good you are to us, revealing yourself to us in so many ways, letting us see different glimpses of Jesus. Last week, going to a wedding, and rejoicing with those who were rejoicing. This week, going to your temple and revealing to us how it was lacking true worship. Lord, we want to be zealous for you. We want to be consumed and have a zeal for being holy as you are holy. So would you work in us to have that kind of zeal, a passion for you, where we direct all of our lives to pursuing, becoming more and more like you by the work that you're doing in us, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.